I'm Jonathan Bastian. This week on KCRW's Life Examines, as mere mortals, we know that death is one day inevitable, but the where and the how might alter that experience. I think a good death is often described as being at home. And so there's been more of a proliferation of hospice agencies and palliative care teams that can help facilitate that. And later, the not-quite-dead Tibetan monks in Tukdom, exploring the mysteries and science of consciousness. There's a lot we don't know about the dying state, and there's a lot for us to understand in terms of what that means about consciousness to allow for the dying process to be a little bit slower and to not be an off-on switch, but to be a slower transition. A palliative care doctor, a hospice nurse, and an academic researcher take us to the front lines of life and death, and what we know and don't know about the in-between states of consciousness. That's coming up on Life Examined. When it comes to the mysteries of life, one thing's for sure, we will all die at some point. And as depressing as this may seem, and before you hit pause, perspectives on death can alter the way we live and approach mortality, whether it's with friends, family, or ourselves. In fact, the Stoic philosopher and emperor, Marcus Aurelius, wrote, quote, Let each thing you do, say, or intend be like that of a dying person. And as you'll hear in this program, there are many who see the process of dying firsthand as beautiful, peaceful, and with hope and even gratitude. In her work as a hospice and palliative care doctor, Sunita Puri says her focus is not just about living while dying, but living well with the time people have left. Dr. Sunita Puri is Associate Professor of Medicine and Program Director for the Hospice and Palliative Medicine Fellowship at the UMass Chan School of Medicine, and she's the author of That Good Night, Life and Medicine in the Eleventh Hour. Dr. Sunita Puri, welcome to Life Examined. Thank you so much for having me, Jonathan. I think it's important to just work through some of the the, the terms that are used medically, like palliative care and hospice care, because these come up so much when we think of end of life. So can you help us kind of untangle some of the language there and and why these are fields that, that from my understanding, are actually kind of growing and becoming more popular in the medical field? Yes, absolutely, Jonathan. I think that's a great place to start because the words hospice and palliative care often bring up emotional reactions in people. And we in medicine don't do the greatest job of under of explaining what they actually are. So I can start with palliative care, which is a subspecialty of medicine that focuses really on alleviating suffering for people who are living with a serious advanced illness and for their families. So we really do that by looking at a concept of total pain. And we see someone suffering as physical. So for example, we do a lot of treatment of cancer pain, emotional and spiritual. So people who are having understandable struggle adjusting to the reality of their new lives and the series of losses that come with being sick. And we treat symptoms and we also have discussions with people about really what matters most to them in their life, what animates their life, who they care about, what they want their life to look like as their sickness gets worse. And really, you know, hospice is kind of a subset of palliative care where we do the same things. But in palliative care, you can have all of that support right alongside getting other treatments like chemotherapy or dialysis or therapies for heart failure. On hospice, we're really parting ways with disease-focused therapy and doing that attending to the total pain of a person, to all of their types of suffering because they are at that point within the last six months of their life. Mm. I, I, I loved your description of how in, in palliative care, there's this idea that you're considering in a sense like the totality of the person or, yes. you know, not just, not just their physical needs, but, but their emotional needs or spiritual needs. Because as you were describing that, I mean, I think how one comes to term with a life-ending illness is like just a profound subject in and of itself. Absolutely. And I think what's so beautiful about palliative medicine is that we're along for that ride with people. And what I mean by that is that part of living well with a serious illness 
means that what matters to you and the types of losses you experience and your adjustment to those changes over time, it's not a static experience. And so having, I can at least say for me, it's super fulfilling to be with someone as they make decisions about what they really want in the time they have. And it's really about living well, not just dying well, but living well. And that is the case both for palliative care and also for hospice. What are some of the commonalities you might see when somebody is thrust into that, you know, crazy existential moment where they're thinking of some of these big questions? I will say that being with people as they grapple with the existential questions is the most meaningful part of my job. And that means, you know, for example, somebody who is young and has a new diagnosis of cancer has to leave their job, has may not be able to see their child grow up and asking themselves, as many of my patients do, what will my life mean now? What will my relationship to people be like now? How will I live knowing that the world will continue around me when I feel stuck? And I think those are some of the really big questions that come up at various points in my relationship with patients. I think I also see a lot of people wondering um, what their relationship with God is. Why is this happening to me? And how will I cope? Who will be there for me? And I think another unfortunate thing I see quite often is that who actually shows up for people is not always who they think is going to show up for people. So a part of the grappling is also understanding who they really mean, what they really mean to certain people. And I think of their journeys as a series of losses. Some of the losses are of relationships and jobs. Some of them are losses of independence. And at every juncture, we check in, we recalibrate. What does life mean now? It's interesting. And as you were saying, you know, it, it's a series of losses, but then this, this kind of other term came to my mind, which is that maybe it's also a process of clarity, though, too, isn't it? Right? Yes. I mean, we live kind of not knowing what we really feel about anything because we're not questioned, we're not put into the fire to the extent that somebody is when they have that diagnosis of cancer and they're 30 years old. You're absolutely right. And I think part of what clarity invites is discomfort Mm -hmm. and what it means to be with discomfort to be with the unexpected, not just in terms of how your body is changing, but also about how your life and your relationships are changing. And I think one of the biggest things that I try to help people with is living amidst uncertainty. Because when you're sick, you're kind of thrust into this kingdom of uncertainty where there's a bunch of paths ahead and we don't really know which one you're going to go down or which where each one is going to lead. And part of, I would say, the evolution of clarity is learning about oneself, how you really do react to uncertainty, how you contend with it, and how you try to make meaning. Because I think that's the other piece of this that's so powerful. What meaning will I make of my life now that I can no longer practice my job? Who am I really? How, who am I as a parent? Who am I as a human? Who am I as someone who may have been devoted to God and now is questioning that? What new joy will I find in my life if I can no longer get out of bed? And so it's kind of a series of challenges that I kind of think of as mining downward into the molten core of who we are. And I think it's molten because we're always evolving and changing. And the force of disease that's around us when we get sick is putting us under a specific type of pressure to evolve, sometimes in unexpected ways with beautiful new clarity. You know, a lot of what you are talking about here are things that that I've kind of considered throughout my life. I, you know, I grew up with a father who had a number of of near death experiences in his life, and is a very oh, serious wow. Buddhist practitioner and meditator. Yes. And the question that he would often pose to me and others is, in a sense, 
how do you prepare your spiritual life in advance of death? How do you yes. get yourself to a point where you are comfortable with how you feel about these bigger spiritual questions? And that's not a question that I have answers to in my own life, but these are questions I think about. But as you were talking about that, for example, that there is this question of how one reflects on God or if they still do or their spiritual practice, I, to me that seems like a really interesting essential part of, a, of an end-of-life practice. You're absolutely right. And I think, you know, the Buddhist and Hindu concept of impermanence is a really powerful orientation to what it means to prepare for death and to what it means to prepare for and hold the losses that and the change that we see every day. Um, in both of those philosophies, and I can speak more specifically to Hinduism since yeah. I was raised Hindu, but all of life is preparation for death, for a good death, for a death that will lead you to a rebirth where you get closer and closer to God. And so what it means, I think, in both philosophies to prepare for that is to sever bondages or attachments which in both philosophies can be sources of great joy, but also great pain because anything we're attached to, be it the plant in our office, the dog we have lovingly raised, the spouse we have, everything, those relationships and the people and the beings themselves are not going to be here forever. And so part of, I think, what it means to prepare oneself for the ultimate loss and the ultimate unknowable loss of dying is to look at the knowable losses. How do we feel when we walk outside and all of a sudden the trees that were green are now crackled and burgundy and falling to the ground? That's a type of death. That's a type of loss. What does it mean to meditate on that? What does it mean to look at a relationship or you know, your professional, your relationship even to your profession now versus how it was five years ago and see how that's evolved. How can we prepare ourselves for the ultimate loss by choosing to move deeply into the losses that we witness now? And I'm not speaking about it just from kind of a, you know, theoretical perspective here that this is something I've actually had to integrate into my own life as a way of kind of grounding myself when I think I can, I'm facing something that I cannot, I don't think I can overcome or cope with. I go back to all of the things, all of the losses, little and big that I have been able to cope with. And that in some way helps me to understand that when I get to the, to the river's edge, when I'm on the riverbank, perhaps I will be less scared and more open and more accepting because I have forced myself to engage with these questions throughout my life. Mm. And it's interesting the way that I think we, or the associations that we make with something like palliative and hospice care, which is when one calls for that style of medicine, it's like a defeat, essentially. Yep. It's like a throwing in the towel of like, okay, well, that's it. It's over. So let's just do this to kind of, you know, to wrap the process up. But I think you're using words here that are more I, that are more uplifting in the sense that actually what we're trying to do is to preserve the best of life or we're yes. trying to you know you've used the term um have a good death which is you know some people might think that's like an oxymoron or something <laughs> you know um yeah. so maybe you can you can kind of talk us through some of that language surrounding this stuff absolutely so i think as a writer a lot of what I focus on and what's a privilege to focus on when I talk with patients and families is figuring out what they actually mean. So when people say things like, I'm a fighter, I want to help, I want to help them articulate what that means to them, what it means for potentially them as a human to be a fighter, but their body not to be able to fight, 
what it means for things to reach limits, whether it's our physical body or the treatment. And when we think about this idea of call palliative because there's quote unquote nothing left to do or we're quote unquote giving up, I think that feeds into this very toxic binary we have in our culture between doing everything and doing nothing, being a fighter and being a quitter. And so really trying to change mindsets and orientation towards death and loss and infuse it with more compassion and acceptance means destroying that sort of language and challenging it and saying, actually, there is always something we can do. And palliative care, palliative medicine is medical care. The difference is that particularly when we get to hospice, the goal of the care has shifted. It has shifted because your disease and your body have shifted. It's shifted because you get now in the wake of those physical changes to live the life that you want and achieve the goals that you want with our support. But it is definitely not giving up or throwing in the towel as it is often cast as. And in fact, when we get called early, we have medical studies showing that patients with cancer who start cancer treatment early and they get palliative care involvement from the time of diagnosis throughout their disease course, those patients live an average of three months longer. Mm. And that, so it's borne out in the scientific data too, that what we do is additive. What we do is supportive. And when you are feeling better and living better, it can be concluded that your body will want to stick around longer. Yeah. And I, I am curious if there is some kind of a shift happening in, in medicine or how we think about disease which is not just like the goal is just to like abolish something, but to learn to live with something, you know, like, is there, are are there changes in how we think about that? Because I hear when you talk about palliative care, which is saying, okay, this is a thing that is within you, but we're going to learn to be with it in a different way. Is that, is that, that true or not? I think it depends on the corner of medicine. Like I Mm. think certainly, within palliative care, our orientation is very much to help you live well with something. I think there is still a lot of focus in medicine on cure, on abolishment. And thank God for that, because there have been things that we have cured. But the vast majority of chronic disease, especially whether it's diabetes or heart failure or advanced cancer, none of that can be cured. And so in a way, Jonathan, all of medicine is palliative because if palliative is about helping you live well with controlled symptoms, that's the goal of everything. Mm. And if most things cannot be cured, then all of medicine is palliative medicine. Mm. And so my hope for the future is that that can be the lens that we apply when we're seeing patients no matter what their disease is. But I do think it's a slow evolution in medicine that's still continuing to unfold because we are still very much cast and we cast ourselves as a very specific type of hero. A hero invested in, I'm going to use your word again, abolishment of the enemy. Mm -hmm. Not so much the hero that's helping you create a soft space in your life for what's ailing you. And we're also seeing shifts, for example, um, of, of people thinking, I think, maybe more clearly about how they may want to die. Where, you know, I, I seem to be reading or hearing more about things like home deaths or putting people yes. in places where they, they feel more comfortable, they're happier. And interestingly enough, I also, also hear about um, home births more and more, too. It seems like all of my friends are having home births, you know. So, but I, either way, there's some kind of paradigm shift here in terms of what we think about our healthy environments to go through these major moments of life. Could you, could you address that? For sure. So I think, you know, throughout human history, most deaths were at home. It was the place you lived. And so of course it was the place you died. And as medicine in the United States became more advanced in the sixties and seventies, so much of death became hidden in the hospital or in nursing homes. 
Whereas if you ask the majority of Americans, most people want to die at home, the place they lived their life, the place that has held them for years. And I think there has always been that interest. And I think a good death is often described as being at home. And so there's been more of a proliferation of hospice agencies and palliative care teams that can help facilitate that for people. I do think that it's worth noting that not everybody has access to that specific type of idealized death. When I was a, when I had first finished my training, I was um, a hospice doctor and covered South Los Angeles. And even though the good death was thought of as people being at home, sometimes for due to social and economic inequality, actually achieving that is out of reach for people who have to work three jobs to stay afloat and can't be home with their loved one at all times, for example. Um, and so I think even though that's what many of us think of as a good death, it's mm. out of reach for a lot of people. And we can have good deaths that we may not have envisioned would be the way we would go. So for example, I took care of a patient who very much was insistent on dying at home. And unfortunately, she needed so much support in the ICU in the form of blood pressure medicines that I couldn't stop the meds to get her home because she would die in the ambulance. Mm. And so we talked a lot about what home actually means. And for her home, what made her physical home home was her comforter, the posters in her room, the people she lived with, and so we got all of that in for her and were able to give her the closest thing to the good death at home with her definition of home actually explicated. And that happened in the hospital, but it didn't mean it was a failure. It meant it was just a recalibration and a conversation about if we can't give you what you're hoping for, what can we give you instead? because so much of death is uncontrollable and mysterious, and we never know when the body is gonna show us its limit. So I often tell people, let's have our plan A and our plan B, and I'm gonna be very honest with you. If I think that your window of being stable enough to go home is closing, because I don't think we do a good enough job about that in medicine. We hear that people wanna die at home, but I don't know that we explicitly say to them, your window is closing. And being able to identify and say that is a huge blessing to people. People want to know these things. We're afraid to tell them, but they really want to know. And so I think that that honesty and transparency is perhaps never more important than when someone is saying, please let me die with dignity in my own bed at home. Mm. Well, finally, I'm just curious how this work has impacted or continues to impact you on a on a very personal level. I mean, I think you're you're kind of in in the cauldron of all these really big questions medically, spiritually, psychologically. Where how does this stuff kind of come home with you at the end of the day and stay with you? That's a great question and I think I am now nine years out of training. And so my the way that I've carried people with me has changed over time. Right now, I will tell you, when I go into my patients' rooms, first of all, I always ask God for guidance. Ask, and I tell him, please help me to do my best for this person. It's a little internal prayer that's automatic. And I envision almost like a clear plexiglass between me and my patients so that I can fully see them but that some of that suffering doesn't hit me the way it used to, because I do carry energy home. I very much believe that. And so sustainability is about holding people and releasing the embrace. So I try to do that every day. And I have my ritual of taking off my white coat, putting on my jacket and leaving the hospital physically different and emotionally different. And when I go home, you know, I do think a lot about these big questions more so in the last year actually than I ever have about am I happy with my life? If I died tomorrow, will this have meant what I hope it would mean? If not, what are the changes that I want to make? What am I afraid to do that I haven't done? How can I get myself to really understand that everything I want is on the other side of fear? 
What does it mean to live joyfully? And I do think a lot about these issues, um, again, more in the past year than ever before. But in that way, the work and the mindset does come home with me. Well, it's been so wonderful to chat with Dr. Sunita Puri, Associate Professor of Medicine and Program Director for the Hospice and Palliative Medicine Fellowship at the UMass Chan School of Medicine and the author of That Good Night, Life and Medicine in the 11th Hour. Thanks so much for sharing all of this today. I really enjoyed it. Thank you so much, Jonathan. It was great to be here. I now want to bring into the conversation another passionate advocate for end-of-life care. Hadley Vlahos is the author most recently of The In-Between, Unforgettable Encounters During Life's Final Moments. She's a registered nurse specializing in hospice and palliative care, and also quite the social media sensation with over a million followers on TikTok. Hadley Vlahos, thanks so much for joining us on KCRW. Thank you so much for having me. What were your first experiences like as as a hospice nurse? They were pretty crazy. I start the book with my very first patient death in hospice, and I expected it to be pretty similar to what I had seen in the hospital, except in a home care setting. I expected that we would do the exact same things. And with this patient, she was what I thought to be hallucinating and seeing her deceased sister. Hmm. So I was there with my manager who was training me and I said, what medications are we going to give to treat this? And she said, well, she's not, we're not going to give any medications. She's fine. She's happy. And I think that she actually is seeing her deceased sister. So we're just going to make sure she's safe and we're going to let her daughter get some rest. And I was like, immediately I knew that this was very different than any other type of medicine. And then that was further proven by the fact that I started talking to all my coworkers and the physician who all believed exactly what she believed. Hmm. So in this book, you you talk very, I think, openly and beautiful about one patient you had, Carl. Can, can you tell us who he was and, and why he made such an impact on you? I, I will always want to talk about Carl. So he was one of my first patients that I had for a very long time. So multiple times per week, I was in his home with his wife caring for him and I got extremely close to him. But the funny thing is that at first, he did not want me in there. He wanted to lay in bed and watch his TV shows and not be bothered <sighs> by anyone. Yeah. So I realized that very early on and I was searching for ways to connect with him. And I saw him watching TV. He was watching sports. And I said, I don't really know much about sports, but my boyfriend just loves sports. Can you teach me about sports? And he really liked that. He liked being able to have that role of teaching someone something instead of just being told what to do and where to go and just kind of being shuffled around. And so that gradually transformed into him sitting there and watching the news all day and he would write down the news for me so that I could stay up to date because he knew that I was a single mom and he would give me these little note cards and every time I'd show up for a visit I'd get these little note cards with the news for mm. the and I didn't understand at the time what was really going on I just was really happy to connect with him and that he would be happy for me to come instead of him being so upset at us coming and then near the very end of his life, one day I showed up and he was not in his bed, which was extremely out of the norm. He was always in his bed and he was walking around his house with a flashlight with his wife behind him concerned, looking for his deceased daughter. Hmm. And I didn't even know that they had lost a daughter when she was two, she drowned. So he's playing hide and seek with her and out of the bed, which is just crazy to even think that his body was able to do that. We call that the surge of energy. And he, he was seeing her and it was amazing to witness. And then the next day when I showed up, it was the last time I spoke to him before he died. And he told me, I'm going to miss you and thank you for giving me something to look forward to instead of death. Hmm. And that was so impactful for me for so many reasons. I realized in that moment that that is exactly, this hospice is exactly where I need to be. And I am making a huge difference, even if society doesn't always see that. And it just, 
he was like a grandfather to me. Mm. And it was so, it was such an important relationship. And, you know, one thing that, that I pick up in that story that I find really beautiful is, is that it seems that, you know, for someone like Carl or someone who gets very old and near death, it's, it's as if they feel like maybe they're no longer of use to anybody. They're just receiving care. They can't impact others. But it, it sounds like the gift that you gave him and that he gave back to you is the ability for him to share something that you cared about or wanted to learn. You were able to receive from him as you were also giving to him as well. Does that make sense? Yes, I totally agree. And many people will echo that, especially as they get much older, like into their 90s, that they feel like they don't get a say in what their care looks like. Hmm. So in many ways, I've tried to give power back whenever I can from those lessons I learned from Carl. And if I can give someone a choice, I will. Even if it's as small as, do you want me to look at your skin now or do you want me to do it at the end of my visit? Hmm. Sometimes just little things that can give them power over their care can make a big difference. Yeah, yeah, no, exactly. So many of the great spiritual traditions or so much I think of important psychology these days focuses on you know, the, the quality of our relationships being an indicator of how we feel in the world or how we feel about ourselves. So I'd imagine that those were conversations that came up, the importance of, of, of family or friends or deep connection. Absolutely. And a lot of, I hear it all the time. I didn't realize how quickly 18 years would go. I didn't realize how quickly the first six years of kids' life would go. And I have small kids and I'm grateful that I get this reminder on a weekly basis. Someone will tell me that on a weekly basis. And it's one thing to think it and go, oh yeah, I heard that hospice nurse one time on the radio say that I should care about this. But for me, I get the reminder every single week. And it's always in my head that I really need to savor these moments. Mm. Can you talk a little bit about the process of, of dying? And in particular, you know, what what, what's it like to not just, you know, be around these folks and have these, these conversations and hear these stories, but just, you know, the last, the last hours or minutes? Um, because it seems to me that that's just not a common experience these days, that death is so medicalized, it often happens in hospitals and very sterile places. Like, what's your experience just being around that, that process, like the physical process of death? I feel like it is a very sacred space that I am lucky to be able to be with people in, that they trust me enough to be in there. And it always feels very sacred. So most people are in a coma and they will have very long pauses between their breaths at the end of their life. And most of the time we're just waiting for that last breath to come and, you know, talking to people and having music and making sure the family's around whenever we know it's close. But something I always find very interesting that I didn't start noticing until a couple of years into my career is that at the end of life, there can be up to a minute between people's breaths. Hmm. So from a medical standpoint, we wouldn't really know that someone's last breath is their last breath until a minute has passed and the next breath doesn't come. But I have I've never had a family member not know whenever it's someone's last breath. The minute they take their last breath or the second they take their last breath, they immediately know that it is their last breath. And that has always been so interesting to me because that defies what we know about medicine. Yeah, you've described you know, that, that moment as, as kind of being, being, being sacred and really important and that you feel so lucky to be there. I mean, do you think that you know, would you communicate that to others that like, if you can, that that's a place that you'd be privileged to be and that you can bear it and that it's okay. And that it's not just going to be like full of dread and really scary because I think that's death has become that to us, right? It's the ultimate avoidance being around it or touching it. So could, could you share anything else about that? Yes. What's interesting is that usually it is the primary caregiver there and they're usually not afraid of it because they've been on that whole journey, which mm. most people think of death as being so extremely sudden, which it can be, of course, but in hospice, it's usually a much more gradual process. 
lights. And whenever you watch that gradual process, it's a lot less jarring. Mm. So you see it, people go through all of these steps. And so whenever the primary caregiver is there, they've known this is coming. They've been preparing for it for months. And so for them, it can be so beautiful. What is interesting is that sometimes we will have extended family members who haven't seen someone in many months try to come whenever I say they're going to die soon within mm. the next couple of days. And sometimes they do get there and they are able to experience it, it and it is so beautiful. And other times what's so interesting is that patients seem to die sooner than I would think they would before family members are able to get there. Mm. And I personally feel like those patients are able to tell when someone would not be able to handle that. And I do feel like they choose their time of death. You know, the title of your book is, is the in-between. And I, you know, I tend to think about that maybe in, in some type of, of spiritual or religious terms. And to you, does, does faith or spirituality factor into anything in those last moments? I mean, has it shaped your views around your own sense of these bigger questions? What, what do you think? A big thing for me that has changed my views from not believing in anything to now considering myself to be spiritual is that regardless of anyone's religious beliefs or no beliefs at all, they all have the same exact experiences, which is seeing their deceased loved ones. And it is always coupled with this immense amount of peace. And for me, that has been extremely moving to witness. And these are not people that I have only known for a day or two. I know them. I know them very well. I know that we haven't done things such as add new medications or any other kind of factor that most people would think influences seeing deceased loved ones. It doesn't matter what diagnosis they have. It doesn't matter what medications they're on, what their religious beliefs are. They all have the exact same experiences. And their loved ones will sometimes tell them that they're going on a long trip or a journey. And at times, they can correctly tell me when they're going to die. And for me, it makes sense for there to be some sort of afterlife based on what I have experienced. But... The other way that I feel about it is that if this is just our minds playing some sort of tricks on us, um, the fact that we will be comforted and calm and at peace at the end also brings me a lot of peace. Yeah. Hadley Vlahos is the author of The In-Between, Unforgettable Encounters During Life's Final Moments. Thanks so much for joining us. Thank you so much for having me. Still to come, what Tibetan Buddhist meditators reveal about the mysteries of the dying process. That's coming up on Life Examined. Introducing the KCRW Donation Car, designed to be recycled. This first-of-its-kind vehicle will save you time, space, and hassle by disappearing. Enjoy the luxury and comfort of turning your underused car into a donation worth hundreds, even thousands of dollars. The KCRW Donation Car, already in your garage, driveway, or on cinder blocks outside your house. Act now at kcrw.com cars. I'm Jonathan Bastian, back with Life Examined on KCRW. As we just heard from nurse Hadley Vlahos, there's still a lot unknown about the death process. One such strange mystery has been witnessed by Tibetan Buddhists. After the death of some monks, their bodies remain in a meditating position, or tuktum, without decaying for as long as two or three weeks. Delayed composition of the body has occasionally been observed elsewhere in the world, but a full scientific inquiry into just what's going on has attracted the attention of the Dalai Lama and neuroscientists from the University of Wisconsin-Madison. Tony Tidwell is a biocultural anthropologist, Tibetan medical doctor, and member of the Tuktim Project at the University of Wisconsin-Madison, and she joins me now. Welcome to Life Examined. 
Thanks so much for having me, Jonathan. It's a pleasure to be here with you guys. So there's this really fascinating history of of Tibetan meditators. These are, you know, a, a certain sect of Buddhism that you've been studying. And there's some amazing things that happen around the time of death for some of these meditators. But I really want you to describe what it is you're looking at with all this research. It's super interesting, but I think it's really new to people. So how, how do you describe the project of Tukdom? Absolutely. Uh, thank you, Jonathan. So this is a phenomena that occurs for those in the Tibetan Buddhist community who have lived a life of meditation, often in retreat for a lot of their life. And as they go into the dying state, will assume a meditation posture and will retain that even after heart and lung function have stopped, brain function has ceased, and will not undergo the same post-mortem changes that normal people go through. So they will not go through rigor mortis. We do not see signs of decomposition. Their skin is elastic and pliable. To someone who walks into the room, they look alive. They look like someone who is just in meditation. And so this was a phenomenon that actually our founder, uh, Richie Davidson, effective neuroscientist, Richie Davidson, um, founder of Center for Health and Minds at the University of Wisconsin-Madison, was in a conversation with the Dalai Lama, and the Dalai Lama was recounting a case of his tutor, Ling Rinpoche, and encouraged Richie to study it and to bring kind of the best of the best of science to understand what's happening, what, what, is, what is going on for these meditators and really kind of pushing a science to think about what does that say about consciousness? What does that say about the dying process and what that tells us about the brain and whether the mind is just an epiphenomena of the brain or if there are other things going on? So this has been the history of our project that started uh, now about two decades ago. Mm. And maybe you can just say a little bit more about the fact that these these monks in meditation, they had a long history of being meditators. They, they didn't just pick this up at the end of life, but it was really um, a, a life practice. Is that right? Absolutely. So most of those who we have observed in this state um, became monastics when they were five, six, seven years old and have gone through their full monastic training um, after, say, a 16-year rigorous study, um, will go into retreat and meditation, sometimes three, six, nine, 12, or most of their adult life. Mm. So we tend to classify this group as those who have 60,000 hours of meditation or more. Wow. Mm. That's amazing. 60,000. And I mean, I think a lot of folks don't recognize that in, in certain monastic traditions that people will go into these incredibly long, silent retreat. I mean, with very little outside access and are, are really just in a place of pure concentration. Absolutely. And a lot of these uh, practitioners have done four sessions to six sessions a day, are often meditating through the night. They will sit in meditation posture, often in a, a box-like form or similar, and will do lucid dreaming practices. So being aware of their dream state, being aware of various kinds of living and uh, sleeping experiences. So uh, the kind of attunement they have to uh, meditative concentration, to awareness, to a quality of attention uh, is, is remarkable. I mean, it's, it's expert level. Mm. So when you began to hear of this phenomenon, and since I kind of grew up in a, in a Tibetan Buddhist community, these kind of felt like apocryphal stories, you know, those that mm. would die still sitting up as if, as if they were still alive. And I'm just curious, what, if you were to look to other traditions or other monastic traditions, are there any other evidence of this happening outside of this meditation community, or is it only really known within the Tibetan community? So various cultural traditions also recognize these immaculate states uh, in dying. So uh, Roman Catholic community sees these as sainthood um, in the Jewish and Islamic mysticism communities. They also recognize these remarkable states in dying. Um, Salakana is a, a 
community in India, also related to Hindu traditions, that looks at the lack of decomposition as a sign of either excelled morality or discipline or also their spirituality. Mm. Um, in Japan, they've also uh, there's a practice where they will abstain from eating going into the dying state and will also show uh, a lack of decomposition and then a mummification. But this community is unique in that there is not any modification of what they've eaten before they go into the dying state. Um, they don't cleanse the body in any certain way. It is literally just entering a practice that they go through every day um, as they go into the dying state. Mm. And maybe just to say one more thing before we talk more about concretely what might be happening, that questions surrounding end of life are perhaps in a lot of these great wisdom traditions, that the preparation for death or the moments leading up to it can be a profound part of the practice for anybody that with a very rich spiritual life, right? Absolutely. Absolutely, Jonathan. And this is seen as the Olympics of their practice, right? This is... Uh, kind of the end game where the opportunity to witness this moment uh, when the subtlest form of mind separates from the body um, allows one to see the nature of mind from the Tibetan Buddhist perspective, that awareness is at its height, that uh, the ability to understand the nature of consciousness, the nature of reality comes at this very particular moment that can be simulated in practice but not to the extent that it naturally arises for all of us, but to be aware at that moment takes this incredible rigor and practice to be present and to recognize um, the qualities at that moment. Hmm. So then how would you compare the death of, of one of these great meditators? You mentioned the way that the body still holds form and um, mm -hmm. versus you know, what you might find in an ICU. I, I take it that there are you know, big differences in terms of these two ways of dying. Absolutely. So what unfolds after clinical death is pretty scripted. So usually when we track a normal death, we would see the paling of the body, what's called pallor mortis within the first 15 to 30 minutes, um, the pooling of blood in dependent surfaces uh, within the first three to eight hours. So discoloration on, on if the body is lay, laying down, say on a bed, all along the back and the back of the body, and then a rigor mortis within the first 24 to 48 hours, and then bloating, putrefaction, all these things progressing within that first 24 to 48 hour period. So what we see is none of that occurs um, until quite late in the game. We've been seeing this at seven days, 18, 21, and again, 36 days. So this begs the question also, is there something about how these meditators are viewing the context of death that also changes the biochemical cascades, say of stress hormones, right, in the body that are actually mm. degrading the body quickly so that even in the Tibetan community that ne doesn't necessarily have an orientation of fear or aversion towards death, they also might not go through that swift of a chronology um, to decomposition as, say, others. Um, so I think it's questioning in the biomedical community uh, also what is that transition of consciousness um, and how long do we wait? Um, today, we're really waiting usually an hour after clinical death has been declared to harvest organs, to kind of move the individual to, uh, say, the mortuary and so forth. And there's various cultural uh, communities that would like a little bit more time hmm. with their loved one, right? So it, it does also question what are our practices, even in the hospital context that allows for this transition to be done so in, in the way that communities and their families would like. Yeah. And this, this to me raises, I think, really interesting questions about how this research and this population could potentially impact a lot of other people and how we approach death, let's say in the West or in America, which it's not considered to be, I think, a very hopeful or pleasant or, or interesting experience, but rather kind of cold and medical, you know, done in hospitals. And I think, you know, my sense is that 
there could be some interesting observations or takeaways from this community that hopefully we might be able to bring to what we do here in this in the states absolutely i think some of the related research that i was mentioning before has been able to show that uh even when we have no activity recognized from the brain that there have been detection of some cardiac activity, some activity in the heart. And this is really mm -hmm. consistent with what the Tibetan Buddhist model says, is that they see the mind at the heart and that consciousness, especially at this moment, uh, this transitory moment in the dying period, that it is isolated really to the heart. And so what this has changed in terms of uh, a more broad perspective is that it is asking do we have a bigger window of opportunity to perhaps bring people back from comatose states or um, states where we think that a few minutes without oxygen in the brain will mean that the brain is dead and is unrecoverable? And what they're saying now is that we might have an hour or longer, actually, and that the brain actually might be in a more hibernating state that will then regain function. And I think that uh, some of our colleagues at University, University of Michigan have cited the Tukdam research to say, you know, there's a lot we don't know about the dying state, and there's a lot for us to uh, understand in terms of what that means about consciousness, about what people are aware of, even when we don't see brain activity happening, mm -hmm. um, that to allow for uh, the dying process to be a little bit slower and to not be an off-on switch, but to be a slower transition. Mm -hmm. Interesting. So, I mean, it's not just about say, you know, a, a peaceful death, but really it's a questioning of like, what, what is death? What do we really know about it? Are there more subtle levels to this process that we don't understand yet? And maybe perhaps just as you say, some interesting research as to when is somebody actually dead or, or could they be still with us or brought back to what we think of as life, right? A lot of big questions. Absolutely, Jonathan. And I think that in our culture in the West, also, we want a death to also be painless and mm. to, in some way, kind of numb out the process, or there's a lot of supporting uh, facilities to help individuals to choose that if they would like. And I think that those who are at the end of life under extreme pain, this is really important to be able to transition peacefully. But in a Tibetan Buddhist context, pain medications will actually inhibit the opportunity to recognize this lucid awareness. And so there's resistance against using a lot of these uh, supports so that they can be present and that that describes an, an ideal death for that community. And so I think it opens up the opportunity for our care teams to really think about what does this individual's ideal death look like and how can that be supported in the best way um, and to open up also different cultural interpretations of what the dying process looks like. It's been so wonderful to be joined by Tani Tidwell on KCRW, biocultural anthropologist and Tibetan medical doctor and a member of the Tukton Project at the University of Wisconsin-Madison Center for Healthy Minds. Thanks so much for this, this conversation, really appreciate it. Thanks so much for having me, Jonathan, it's a pleasure. That's it for this week. Our producer is Andrea Brody. You can find us on Facebook or connect with me on Instagram. I'm at Jonathan W. Bastion for exclusive weekly videos and a whole lot more. Have a wonderful week. This is Life Examined. We'll see you soon.